0: It is bizarre in a way when you think we don't even give a second thought to the fact that hot cross buns you eat them all the time and they've got this little cross on the top and that's great it's one of the symbols of Easter you know you have the hot cross buns you've got the Easter bunny Easter eggs and the cross itself and you see crosses of course all year all different places you see them on the side of the road where people have died uh, you see them at gravesides you see them in churches like this we don't even think twice about it but just for a second Try and put yourselves back into the historical time period that the cross itself actually came out of. And it starts to look a little bit bizarre that we put these crosses on a food group and take this tasty little bun and stick a cross on the top of it and eat it without any real thought because the cross, we've we've kind of domesticated the cross a lot these days. Uh, But of course, the cross represents... A form of execution. And we don't like to talk about that on Easter Sunday but it represents possibly the most inhumane form of execution that history has ever handed down to us when you look at all the different ways that human beings have found to put other human beings to death. This is quite possibly the most grotesque and the most repulsive and the most agonizing. It was mainly used uh, during the period of the Greek and the Roman Empires a little bit during the Persian Empire, around about just the late B.C., early A.D. centuries, so around about 2,000 years ago, uh, for for several hundred years. And The basic idea you're probably familiar with, I won't go into all the gory medical details, but you have someone who is literally impaled on this crossbeam, sometimes by tying the, the, the arms and legs there, sometimes by nailing through the wrists and the feet to keep them up, and they they die a slow and agonizing death. Usually they end up dying by asphyxiation because they can't get enough oxygen into their body because they're desperately trying to pull themselves up, if you can imagine, to gasp, to get air in. But every uh, stretch they take to try and lift up their diaphragm is just excruciating. In fact, that word excruciating literally means of the cross or from the cross, That's where we get the English word excruciating. We invented a word to describe how painfully agonizing this form of death really is. And tens of thousands of people died this way. Not just a few. I mean, the Romans perfected this. It wasn't usually uh, carried out on Roman citizens, but for slaves and peasants particularly, tens of thousands of people. In 73 BC, there was a Jewish rebel, uh, Spartacus, who was captured by the Romans, him and 6,000 of his followers, and the emperor was so despising of Spartacus that he ordered that Spartacus and his entire 6,000-strong army be all crucified at exactly the same time. So they lined up these crosses along a 192-kilometre stretch of major highway, the Appian Way, just outside of Rome, and they literally put 6,000 of these crosses up and hung up these guys all at one time so that travellers passing along this road would watch these guys squirming and bleeding and dying, hung up like billboards along a huge arterial through the Roman Empire to send a message to everyone else, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with the empire. It's the kind of domination that the symbol contains. It's the kind of power play that's going on. And this is the death that Jesus of Nazareth died. He was born and lived uh, in the early centuries, in the early years of the first century AD, and was crucified by the Roman government in a similar way to tens of thousands of other people. And you can imagine how a bizarre and in in some ways grotesque it must have been, in the years after Jesus' death, when his followers in this movement that began forming around the person and work of Jesus, began taking the cross as a religious symbol, began using the cross as a symbol of their identity with Jesus. The fact that they were identified with him and followers of him. They started using the cross at the very historical time that it was still being used to crucify people on. It's one thing for us today to have tamed it right down, but back then... This was still a real form of execution. And yet the cross becomes this profound symbol of faith and hope and life for these followers of Jesus. It's hard for us to get our minds around that today. Maybe an equivalent would be if we wheeled in this morning an electric chair and put it on the stage here and somehow talked about this as a symbol of faith and identity. I mean, just the offensiveness of that statement Just the alarm that that would raise in people's minds, how hideous, how grotesque that would be. It's that shock value that we've lost. Because we think nothing of it to put a cross in our church. And yet it was something brutal, it was something agonizing. And that's precisely the point. That's exactly what the cross was supposed to do. It was supposed to shock. It was supposed to cause some degree of offense Because the cross stands as a representative of everything that has gone wrong with this world. It stands as a symbol of human brutality and human torture and and the incredible lengths that people will go to to hurt and destroy one another. It stands as a symbol of human depravity and the depths to which we have sunk over the centuries. The cross stands to remind us that things are not okay. You're not okay, I'm not okay, and this world is not okay. I came face to face with this a few weeks ago. I was in the hospital room of a family uh, connected with our church who had just given birth to a stillborn baby. They went into the delivery suite just a few hours ago expecting to walk out again, I guess a couple of days later, with a beautiful, living, breathing, healthy baby girl in their arms. And instead they left with the body of their beautiful daughter Kaya in their arms. And as I sat in that hospital room and tried to think of some words, any words that would bring any kind of semblance of hope and comfort to that family, there's just this sense in the hearts of, I think, everybody in that hospital room that this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way the world is supposed to work. It's like this sense of injustice grips your heart, almost a sense of rage and anger and indignance at what a broken and fallen world we live in. And I think that conclusion that the world is just simply not the way it's supposed to be, that we are not just on the up and up, things are not just getting better and better, we're not just going to be okay, I think that conclusion is easier and easier to accept today. Because we've, we've come through... The Enlightenment, we've come through the age of reason, you know, back in the 18th century, when there was this profound confidence in in the human mind and human rationality to solve the problems of the universe. And we convinced ourselves that through the reasoning powers of the human mind, through scientific progress, through technological advancement, that eventually we would usher in this utopian society where we would be free and prosperous, and the autonomous human self was on the very throne, that we would be the captain of our fate, that we would be the master of our own souls, that we would reduce everything to natural cause and effect unlock the secrets and mysteries of the universe and finally be able to dominate this cosmos that we find ourselves in. And we entered the 20th century with that kind of profound triumphalism that we were just the trajectory was up and to the right, that we were going in the right direction and everything was going to be wonderful. The human mind would solve it all. And we had the First World War and we had the Second World War and the Holocaust. And we had Stalin's regime. In the 80s, we had the Iran-Iraq War. In the 90s, we had the Rwandan genocide. And we had 9-11. We have the ongoing threat of global terrorism. And there are fewer and fewer people today willing to stand up and say, yeah, we're just doing it. everything's fine, thanks very much. We're on the up and up, everything's just gonna be okay. Now, friends, philosophers are scrambling to try and explain the so-called problem of evil in the world? What's gone wrong? Where have we come unstuck? Why has the age of modernity not delivered what it promised to us? Why are there so many unmet expectations and broken dreams through history? Where have we come off the rails? And we're so good at pointing the finger out there everywhere and locating the problem in all kinds of places. We want to locate it in power structures and institutions and social or cultural groups and evolutionary processes. And what we're not good at doing is pointing the finger back into our own human hearts and acknowledging that ultimately what is wrong with the world is us. That ultimately we are the problem. And in our really honest moments, those times when we're prepared to be really brutally vulnerable with ourselves, we can bring ourselves maybe to acknowledge that we are part of the problem. The problem's not out there somewhere with society, with humanity, with culture, with the world as some nameless mass of humanity. It's in our hearts. The problem runs through every single individual human heart. And at the very center of it is the fact that you and I have declared our autonomy from the God who created us. We've declared our independence from Him. And we've said to Him, maybe passively through simply ignoring, maybe actively through being antagonistic and railing against Him, but we've said to Him in one way or another, we don't need you. We don't want you. We can do it by ourselves. We can live life on our own. It, I'm going my way, I'm doing my thing and I, I, I don't need this God in heaven to have anything to do with my life. We've marginalized him and pushed him right out. Simply squeezed him out of our consciousness and busied ourselves with a million priorities and hectic schedules and the voice of God just gets softer and softer and softer inside our head. And so the relationship that God designed us to have with Him is ruptured and fractured. And this is simply what the Bible encompasses in one word, which is sin. And it's tough to use that word today, it's lost almost all its currency, it's been so cheapened and misused. But in the very heart of it, sin simply refers to the fact that that relationship between us and the God who designed and created us has been fractured by our own autonomy, by our own doing. And because that relationship is not right, our relationships with one another get severed. Our relationships with one another get fractured and ruptured as well, and it ripples out to the relationships between groups, between cultures, between societies, between nations, and the source of our problem, even the relationship between us and the planet itself. All of it stems back to our insistence that we have our freedom and our autonomy from the God who designed us, created us, and knows what's best for us. And the cross stands, in the first instance, as a somber reminder of that, as a somber reminder that we're just not okay. In fact, every one of us, the Bible says, has fallen short, that we've missed the mark, and there's really no difference between me and you, between you and someone else. We all think we're okay, because we measure ourselves relative to everyone else. The Bible says, no, you're all in the same boat. You've all crashed and burned. We've all let ourselves down. And we now find ourselves severed from the only possible hope we have. God himself. But there's another dimension to the cross as well. The cross doesn't just stand as a symbol of the bad news. It also stands as a symbol of the good news. And if you again cast your mind back to that historical period when the cross was operating. In those few centuries. While it's true there were tens of thousands of people that were crucified on these things. There's one guy that stands out in particular. Not because he looked any different to anybody else, not because his name was particularly unusual. His name was Jesus, but that wasn't uncommon in those days at all. It's just like Joe or or, or Harry, whatever. It was just Jesus. We think that's unusual. It wasn't. Even the method of his crucifixion wasn't that unusual. You read the texts that have been handed down to us. He, he, He went through the same process, the same flogging, the same torture, the same basic crucifixion procedure. And yet there was something unique about Jesus' death. There was something that made his death stand out from the two guys that were crucified on either side of of him and from the tens of thousands of people that were crucified through the centuries around him. And the Bible spells out what that distinction of Jesus' death actually was. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, there are just a couple of succinct verses that pinpoint the difference that Jesus' death made from every other death in human history. Let me read you Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Can you see the difference in Jesus' death? Can you see how somehow this death has benefits not just for, for Jesus himself, but also for us? We find ourselves suddenly woven into this story. Look at the contrasting pronouns between he and between us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. The word that, that sums up this whole concept is Substitution. That somehow Jesus' death on a Roman cross acted as a substitute for us. That somehow he stood in our place. How is that possible? How is it possible that a man who died 2,000 years ago could possibly be some kind of substitute for us? Well, let me give you an analogy. Not a perfect one, but an illustration. There was a, during the Second World War, there was a Polish priest named Maximilian Kolbe. Pretty cool name. And he was arrested in 1941 by the Nazi Gestapo for harbouring about 2,000 Jewish refugees and also for some radio broadcasts which were anti Nazi. And he was taken into uh, detaining quarters and eventually was transferred to Auschwitz. And while Maximilian Kolbe was at Auschwitz, there was a man from his barracks that vanished and disappeared, presumably somehow escaped. And as a deterrent to any future escapes, the barracks commander from Kolbe's barracks demanded that 10 other men be lined up and starved to death in an isolated cell. These men had done nothing wrong, but this was simply a warning and a deterrent that nothing like this would be tolerated in the camp. So 10 men were randomly selected and Colby wasn't one of them. But as these guys were lined up and just about to be led away to their execution, one of them cried out, begging for his life. begging. For his life, for the sake of his family, and pleading for mercy from the commander. At which point, Maximilian Colby calmly stepped in and asked the barracks commander whether he would allow Maximilian Colby to take the place of this man in line. And amazingly, the commander allowed it to happen. So, Maximilian went and stood in line with his other ten men. And this man who was about to be led away to his own death by starvation was taken out of line and back to join the other prisoners. And Maximilian was led away with these other ten guys and over the next couple of days starved to death along with them. He probably didn't know this guy. He may have known him just in a superficial way. But in that moment, Maximilian Colby decided voluntarily and willingly to offer his life as a substitute for this man. To offer himself as an exchange for this man's life, to save the life of this other prisoner. In some way, that that, that might help give you a bit of a glimpse into what's going on in this passage that we read, as we, we consider the idea that Jesus was somehow our substitute. It's not a perfect illustration, because for example, we deserved the death that Jesus died. It should have really been you and I on the cross, if we're honest with ourselves. You might not think so, but we do deserve that death. We do deserve that punishment. We do deserve that judgment. The Bible says that's what we've earned. That's what we've really brought on ourselves through declaring our autonomy from God and asserting this kind of arrogant independence that we have. We deserve to be led away to that death, to experience the death that Jesus died. And yet God was not content to simply allow the human creatures that He had made to walk away to their own self-created destruction. God wasn't content to see you and I just drift mindlessly toward our own doom. I don't know what your perception of God is this morning. I don't know how you think about Him when you hear that word God, the connotations that come to your mind. A lot of the time a lot of people have this idea that God is just this aloof and distant deity. It's a very Greek kind of conception of God. That He is just indifferent. Aristotle called God the unmoved mover. He's just out there and He's indifferent to the plight of humanity. He's just washing His hands of it. doesn't really give a rip about us. He just kind of wound the clock up once upon a time and now He's just letting it run. He's removed and alienated from the mess that we are in. I think that's how a lot of people think about God. He doesn't ultimately care. He's not really concerned about us. And yet the God that we meet in the Bible is not the unmoved mover. The God that we meet in the Bible is the God that Jürgen Moltmann described as the crucified God. The God who was not content to sit back and watch our own destruction and our own judgment. He was a God who climbed in. He didn't just come up with a solution. He became the solution himself. 2,000 years ago, God himself stepped into our human experience. He stepped onto this filthy, sin-infested, corrupted planet and entered into the full experience of humanity, becoming a man. And this is the, the God we meet in the face of Jesus, the God who took on humanity, not just skin and bones, but the full nature and essence of what it means to be human. And God didn't just condescend himself to that level. He stooped even to the level of death and a death on a Roman cross that you and I will never have to experience, one of the most brutal and agonizing experiences our minds can possibly picture. God allowed himself to go through that. And as Jesus, who was fully God, hung on that cross that Friday afternoon for those painstaking hours and breathed his last dying breath, An incredible exchange took place. Not one that you could see, just simply from the outside. To the passers-by, it looked like just another crucifixion on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. But there was something going on behind the scenes that Isaiah captures in that passage we read. Because in those moments, God took upon Himself every single thing that is wrong with this world. Every single thing that is wrong with you and I. Every single thing that we have done and thought and said and become that is displeasing and disconnected from the God who loves us. God himself took on all of your failures, all of your past regrets, all that stuff that you've done that you're not proud of, that stuff that when you think about it, you cringe. It makes your stomach turn because there's such regret there. Maybe it's those relationships in your past that you just blew it. Maybe it's those secret habits and addictions that just enslave you and you cannot, despite your very best efforts, seem to free yourselves from them. It's those stupid things that we just keep doing, those things that we mess up and stuff up and screw up and find ourselves sitting down some days saying, why can I not be the person I wanna be? Why can I not be a better person? It's those regrets, it's those anxieties we live with, it's those fears about the future. It's that stuff that we don't even realize we've done that has displeased and dishonored the God who made us. And we didn't even know because mindlessly and blindly we were just carrying on living the life we've always lived, doing the stuff we've always done. All that stuff that suffocates us and stains us and corrupts us, God himself in the form of Jesus took on on the cross. He took it upon himself and he died to pay the price for every single last bit of it. And three days later, he rose again from the grave by the hand and the power of God so that the words of Isaiah would be real and true, that by his wounds we could be healed. But because of what he has done, because of the great exchange and the substitution of Jesus on the cross, that you and I could truly and finally and fully be healed and set free and forgiven. And that, friends, is the good news of Easter. Not just a superficial cleansing from a few things. Not just an easing of a guilty conscience, but a deep and profound internal deep tissue cleansing. By the power of the God who made us. That is the gift that Jesus makes freely available to every single one of us. And as you read the Bible, that the writers, those ancient writers, just grasp for words and language to try and describe this incredible gift that is now on offer to us. And they use these images, they use the image of a prisoner who's been set free, who was who was in a ball and chains in a prison cell, and it's like coming into the light for the very first time and squinting in the sun with the light and the hope of new life, to be free from all that stuff that I'm carrying around with me, free from all my past mistakes and failures and regrets and things that I just detest and despise about myself, the chance to be free, really, truly free from all that. That's what Jesus is offering you, friends. It's that hope, of uh, the image of, of, of water, clean, fresh water, that truly cleanses us. Not just an outward cleansing, but this deep, internal, living water that washes away all the dirt, washes away all the filth and the grime that we've picked up over the years. It's that image of, that Isaiah himself uses of wounds, deep wounds, that have been healed, the tissue that's knit back together. We spend our whole lives wondering if there really is hope if there really is forgiveness, if there really is a way to have a new beginning, to have a fresh start, not just a clean slate, a new slate altogether. And the answer on Easter Sunday is yes, because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And friends, God doesn't force that on any of us. God doesn't force that freedom, good news though it is, on you and I. He respects our decision to embrace it Or to reject it and there will always be people that for whatever reason choose to reject that good news choose to reject and turn away from that offer of eternal life and freedom and forgiveness and new beginnings that's available because of what christ did and if you're in that boat this morning of saying thanks but no thanks then i just want to say to you thank you for coming and thank you for for giving this a hearing and for listening and i just pray you won't close your mind to this in the future you'll leave it open to allow that investigation to to somehow continue But there will also be people that say yes there will be people that say you know I'm sick of running from this I'm sick of hiding from this I'm sick of pretending all this doesn't exist and just going on doing my own thing my own way and just continuing to be plagued by a deep guilt and burden that I keep carrying around I need this freedom I need this and today's gonna be the day that I run back into the arms of that God who created me and re-enter that relationship with him that was lost because of my own wrongdoing and I know this idea that we're talking about of beginning a relationship with God often us Christians talk about that like it's nothing but I realize that's a big step it's a big deal and especially for those of you who have a perception of God that's not healthy some of you think of God just like an absentee landlord he's just out there somewhere unconcerned and indifferent And some of you think of God as an angry tyrant, that he's standing here to judge you and condemn you with a scorecard, waving his finger at you and checking off boxes. And some of you, because of the fact that your own father was such a disappointment to you, even to talk about the idea of God as your father makes you cringe. And it's very tough for you to accept God as any kind of father because those connotations of father are so negative for you. And if that's the God that's in your mind this morning, I don't, I don't want to be glib and simplistic about it, but I want to just suggest you do something. Just fire that God. Just get rid of Him. Because that's not a God of reality. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God who created you. That's a God who exists only in your own mind. That God's a delusion that we've created, maybe for good reason and maybe because of circumstances in our life, but it's a God who is, is a f- fragment of our imagination. And I want to encourage you this morning to embrace and turn to the God who is real, the God who loves you desperately, passionately, and individually, the God who did not give up on you and did not abandon you, but became the crucified God, entering into our experience and hanging, bleeding, and dying on a Roman cross one Friday afternoon to demonstrate to you the depth and the gravity of His love. That was worth the risk for God. That was worth the sacrifice in the hope that maybe one day you might say yes to him. Not that God is a God who's dependent on us, but he's a God who longs for relationship and intimacy because he knows it is for our best, that we need that relationship to be whole and healthy people and to embrace the eternal life that he offers us so i want to encourage you and ask you just to do one thing and we're going to do it just in these next couple of minutes wherever you're at and uh, whatever your journey is right now with god i want to just ask you to begin a conversation with god it's really as simple as that it's not about a ritual It's not about a formula, it's not about a ceremony, it's not about being christened as a baby, it's not about saying certain words, praying certain prayers, or going through the motions. It it begins, like any relationship, with conversation. It begins by talking to Him. It's what we call prayer. And it's as easy as simply saying what is on your heart. You don't need anyone else to say it for you. For some of you this morning, that conversation might start like this. God, I don't know. I don't know about this. I'm not at all convinced this could be a load of rubbish i don't have all the evidence i don't have all the answers i certainly don't have my life together but i want to know more and i want to just follow this and see where it goes i'm not quite ready yet to jump in but i want to begin the conversation you can start doing that you certainly don't need to have it all together have it all figured out have your life man if that was the criteria there'd be no nobody in we'd all be out still out in the darkness and the cold. But you can start a conversation without even being entirely convinced that God exists. You can say, your, your conversation may start with God, if you're real. If you're real. And I want to begin talking with you and just seeing where this relationship goes. And there may be others of you this morning the conversation may go like this, God, I'm ready. I'm sick of running. I'm sick of hiding. Today's the day. I'm ready to step back into a relationship with you. I'm ready to take hold of the free gift of eternal life that's made available because of Jesus on the cross. And I want to come to you and say that I'm sorry for everything that I've done and messed up, and I just want to embrace your way for my life. I want to embrace your forgiveness and your cleansing and your freedom. You might be right and ready. To say those words to god this morning right ready to re-enter that relationship with him and if that's you i want to encourage you to have the guts and the boldness to take that step today we can all walk out of here push this to the back of our minds and carry on living the life that we that we want to live or we can do something about it make today a day of decision as these issues come into clarity make today the day that you act and begin that conversation with god And so I want to lead us just in a a minute or two of silence, really, to give you the opportunity, because I don't know how that conversation needs to start for you. But I'll kick us off, and then I'm just going to give you a minute or two to, to keep that conversation going with God and say whatever it is to Him that you need to say today. And then the band's going to come and finish with a song as we continue to reflect and close our service. So let's pray together.